0: So, by way of introduction, my name is Rufus Williams, and I'm one of your elders here at Parkway. Dan and Deanna Deckard are away for the weekend, so I have the privilege of bringing the Word of God to you, and uh, it is truly a privilege for me. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, just after Jesus' resurrection, where two of his disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. And uh, they don't know that he's been raised from the dead yet. And he appears to them, and they don't recognize him. And in the process of their conversation, it says in Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, the story of the Bible is the story of God redeeming a people for himself from among fallen humanity through the work of his chosen redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. All of Scripture points us to his work of redemption. This is not an afterthought or a parenthetical statement or idea on his part. This is the main point of the Bible. This means that as we study the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, we must do so with our eyes gazing upon the work of Christ. We should not read the Old Testament as if the New Testament hasn't happened. And as we look for application, we must do so in light of the accomplished work of Christ. And so we come to the story of Job. A story of immense tragedy, suffering, faith, and perseverance. And a story, I believe, that is meant to point us to Jesus Christ in both the broader context of Job's life and, more specifically, in his faith. And these are the two ways in which we're going to see Christ in the story of Job this morning. So let's start by reading Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, to give us an introduction to Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for your word and for the privilege of declaring your word this morning. I pray that you would be pleased to speak to us that your spirit would be pleased to save and sanctify among us. We ask that you would exalt Jesus Christ in our lives. In his name I pray, amen. So, who was Job? First, I want to say that Job is one of the oldest stories of the Bible even though it's located right before the Psalms. So, some of you might look at it and say, but wait, it's about right here. How can it be the oldest, you know, story? Well, Job's not placed in the Bible based upon its chronology. Uh, Job's placed right before the Psalms because ultimately, Job is a great work of Hebrew poetry. It's a giant poem. It opens with a couple of chapters of prose It closes with prose, and in between, you have 39 chapters of a really long poem. So, that's why it's put right before the Psalms. It's the beginning of poetry and wisdom literature. So, who was Job? Job lived in the land of Uz, which is probably near modern-day Jordan or northwest Saudi Arabia today, and most likely... He lived before or around the time of Abraham. So why would I say that? Well, because in the book of Job, if you haven't read it, you should read it. Read it on your own. Not right now, but in its entirety. Um, As you read it, you'll notice that there's no mention of the law. There's no mention of the tabernacle. There's no mention of the patriarchs at all. Uh, There's also some mention of denominations of money that... We never heard of and hadn't been used by the Israelites. So, what we do know about him for sure is that he is a believer in the one true God. He's a person of integrity. He's righteous, and he acts as a priest to God for his family and for others. We also know that he was an extremely wealthy man He was the greatest, we're told in this introduction, the greatest of the people of the East. He was well-known, and he had seven sons, three daughters, many servants, and then look at the list. I mean, this is specific, right? 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Well, that's because the male donkeys, they don't matter, Right? It's the female donkeys that matter. Now, today, we look at something like this and we think, what's the point of. Um, well, the point was this guy was super wealthy. I mean, in the ancient days in an agrarian culture in the Middle East, your wealth was measured by your possessions. They didn't have banks. They didn't have online apps to pay each other, right? Like, this was it. So, even though it doesn't really connect with us, what difference does it make if he had 3,000 camels? That is a really big deal. So, he would be, in all honesty, a billionaire by today's standards. He was the greatest of the people of the East, and he was an extremely faithful man to the one true God. Now today what I'm going to do for you is this. I'm going to give you an overview of the story of Job along with some observations and then we're going to look at three declarations of faith that Job makes in the book. But let me start by saying that the, the suffering of Job is great. It is not meant to be so great in order to disconnect us from it. But rather, it is meant to be representative of human suffering. That is to say, it is comprehensive. Job's suffering is comprehensive. And it is meant to magnify the faith that he has in God, even in the midst of his suffering, great loss, This is uncomfortable for me to say and probably uncomfortable for you to hear. But God cares more about Job's faith than he does about his prosperity, comfort, or success in life. God cares more about Job's faith than he does about his prosperity, his comfort, or his success in life. And that's what we're going to look at. This is not how we like to think in our western American wealthy culture, right? We want to believe in this pop Hollywood idea of karma, which should never be our perspective as believers in the God of the Bible. This view would, would teach us that good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people, and what comes around goes around. You know how it is. This also happened to be the wrong view of Job's friends 4,000 years ago. So, what happened to Job? What happened? Here's his story. Round one, Satan, which means the accuser, because he's the accuser of God's people. Satan goes before God, and he says, God says, what have you been doing? He says, basically roaming around the world, seeking who I can devour, okay? And he is granted permission by God to test Job's faith. But he can't touch his person. So in other words, he says, you can test him, but you can't touch his body. So, in one day, Job loses all of his children, all of his possessions, and most of his servants. But Job maintains his faith in God. Round two, Satan is granted further permission to touch Job physically, but he can't kill him. Job is struck with sores, or in some translations, boils, from head to to foot that make him unrecognizable to his friends. I didn't mention this in the first service, but I will mention it here. What we already have right now, when I, already, when I said earlier that Job's suffering was not meant to disconnect us from it, but was meant to be representative of human suffering, for us to understand it as being comprehensive, Job has just lost Everything he owns, his children, and now his health. These are the things that we think about when we think in terms of our comfort or success in life. And you'll even hear people say, well, at least I have my health. Well, now he's been struck physically. And it's so bad that his wife then tells him to curse God and die. His wife tells him, curse God and die, but Job maintains his faith in God, maintains his integrity. After his wife tells him this, then he has three friends. This is probably where we get the phrase with friends like these who needs enemies. He has three friends who decide to coordinate a visit to comfort him and show him sympathy. But what they end up doing is taking turns telling Job that there must be some sin in his life to justify God doing this to him. And most of the book is Job and his three friends going back and forth on this subject. And it basically starts in chapter 2, verse 11, and goes all the way through the end of chapter 38, 37, I mean. And then. At the beginning of chapter 38, God shows up. God shows up in the whirlwind. It's like he lets these guys sit in the ashes talking to each other about why the three friends telling Job why it's all his fault that God did this. And Job saying, no, it's not. Then God shows up. And he speaks, beginning in chapter 38, and he puts them all in their place because God alone is wise. He is all wise in all of his actions, and he alone is God over all creation, and he acts to accomplish his purposes in all things. This is who God shows up and says he is. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world, he says. Where were you when I flung the stars up into the sky? Did I ask your advice? is what God says to Job and his friends. Now, in response to God showing up, Job repents presumably in recognition of his sinful condition before his great and holy God. And the reason I say that is because his view of God wasn't wrong. The three friends had a wrong view of God, and God even told them that. So much so that when God was done speaking, he says, Job spoke rightly about me. But these three guys are totally wrong. And God says to them, You can offer a sacrifice through Job, ask him to pray for you, and and I'll hear him, and I'll spare you. This is what God says to the three friends. So they do it. They offer the sacrifice, and then God restores Job's fortunes after Job prays for his three friends who are completely wrong about God. He gives him double what he had before, And he gives them seven more sons and three more daughters. And at the close of the book, we read, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. This is the story of Job in a nutshell. So now some observations. The first thing I want you to see from the story of Job is that God recommended Job for testing. God considered him worthy of testing because of the strength of his faith Job's faith was more important to God than his wealth, family, or comfort. This flies in the face of how we think, not just because of what I mentioned of the silly pop Hollywood thing, but also because we like to think that if someone is strong in their faith, a person of integrity, righteous living, then surely God will protect them and bless them. Why would God ever allow a physical ailment, a death of a child, or the loss of all prosperity happen to someone who is faithful to him? Why would God allow that? Well, this right here tells us that God was the most faithful. He was the wealthiest person and a man of integrity, and God recommended him because of the strength of his faith, because of it. The second thing I want us to see is that God actually calls Job his servant. You can read that in chapter 1 and 2. But God calls Job his servant. He's blameless and upright. Job, in the story, is God's righteous, suffering servant, whose faith in God is vindicated in the end, but ultimately in the end, Job died, as we all will. Dan has mentioned this before when he's been up here, and that is that a hundred years from now, no one in this room will be alive. This isn't something that we think very often about. But a hundred years from now, no one in here will be alive. Now, if we lived maybe back before Abraham in the time of Job, we might be able to get 140 more years after this. But even then, Job died. Even with his faith, Job did not conquer death. But I believe that Job's life points us to a greater righteous suffering servant and priest whose faith was also vindicated by God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. God saw fit that Job should suffer to vindicate his faith, but even more so, he saw fit that Christ should suffer and die to vindicate his faith and to conquer death for all of us. Jesus is the greater Job. He voluntarily suffered and died for our sins in order to remove the curse of death from us. He accomplished what Job could not. Through his obedience in life and perseverance, through the agonizing death of the cross the undeserved suffering of Christ for us resulted in the glory of his resurrection. He was raised to eternal life because his sacrifice for our sin was sufficient. And because it was counted as sufficient by God the Father, he vindicated him by raising him from the grave. And now he is our great high priest who intercedes to God the Father on our behalf. This is how we should see Christ in the life of Job. But now, let's look at Job's faith, at these statements of faith. The first big declaration of faith that I want to look at. Now, if you read the book of Job, you'll find more than one, more than three, okay? But I'm wanting us to look at these three in particular. And the first one is this. After round one of the attacks on Job, he says this. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job recognizes that the Lord owns all of our possessions and all of our relationships. We have nothing of our own power or origination, not even our children. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Everything we are and everything we have comes from God. And nothing in this life can be taken with us, nor can it save our souls. And Job believed this. He understood it. The next declaration of faith I want us to see is from Job 13.15. And this is Job after round two, after his friends are beating up on him. He says about God, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job acknowledges that we are mortal, and our very breath is in God's hands. He is our only hope. No matter how long we live in this life, we will still die because of the curse of sin. But Job's hope is in God, even if God were to slay him, as it were. His hope is beyond the grave, beyond his own death. He recognizes that his life, his very life, is not his own. This is one of those little tricks we play with ourselves, to think that we're going to give God a part of something that doesn't already belong to him completely. Our very lives are completely His. But these words of Job should direct our minds beyond His life, further to the cross of Christ, where we've been told in Isaiah 53 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And to remember the words of Christ on the cross from Luke twenty-three forty-six, where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This declaration of faith is the declaration of the author of our faith who with outstretched arms says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. The next declaration of faith and final one that I want us to see is this. Job 19, 25 to 27. Now, I just want to say before I, you can, you're already reading it, but it doesn't matter. The most liberal biblical scholars will place the writing of the book of Job somewhere around 500 B.C., And by liberal, I mean people who probably don't believe the Bible. So, the more conservative ones place the writing of the book of Job somewhere in 1500 to 2000, okay? I'm okay with the idea that Job was a story that was told by the patriarchs and passed down before it was put in writing. I'm okay with that idea. But I still think it was written probably more like 1500, not 500 B.C., But even if it was written 500 years before Jesus, 500, listen to these words. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see, and not another whom I shall behold. My eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job's faith goes beyond the grave. He looks forward to the day when he will see God in his resurrected body because he believes in a living Redeemer. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job acknowledges his need for redemption and he declares in faith the certainty of his own resurrection. Jesus is the redeemer Job longed for and points us to, who lives and reigns and in the end will stand upon the earth. So some quick points of application. First, as I mentioned earlier, when you are studying or reading the Old Testament, ask yourself how what you are reading points you to Christ. The passage that I mentioned earlier, Luke 24, 27, says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the Scriptures, all the Scriptures, the things concerning himself. You must not read the Old Testament as if you don't know the New Testament exists. And do not read it to find personal prosperity verses to claim for yourself. That is not why it's there. From Moses to the Psalms, to the minor prophets. Read it to see the gold nuggets of Christ. That's why it's there, driving us forward to the day when God will come in flesh and die for us. That's what this story's about, and that's why it's there. Don't forget that. Second, On a more personal note of application, when you are suffering through tragedy, illness, loss of wealth, loss of family members, loss of friends, remember that Christ voluntarily suffered still greater loss on our behalf because of our sin. And he has conquered death for us through his resurrection. If you don't, you will get lost. You will get caught up in what you believe should be the justice that you deserve in this world, in this life. You will get derailed from your spiritual walk. You must remember that the suffering of Christ is where you find your victory. His death and resurrection has conquered death for us. And remember that difficulties in our lives, as with Job, are meant to refine our faith, to reform our character, and to refocus our minds on life beyond the grave, to our union with Christ in his resurrection and return. such that we should be able to declare with Job. Naked I came, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold him, and not another. My heart faints within me. Can you say that? I pray that you share this hope with me this morning and that your faith is strengthened in Christ, our Redeemer, in whatever circumstances you're going through. May Jesus be exalted in your life through your faith in him. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we are humbled by your great grace and your kindness to us. May your word accomplish its effects in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.